Welcome to Piece of Work, the podcast where we examine the process and philosophy of one creative person by focusing on a single piece out of their body of work. I'm your host, Brandi Sperry. I'm a screenwriter living in Los Angeles, and my guest today is Bryn Gribben, a brilliant essayist, among many other things, including being my dear friend of going on 20 years. Hello, Bryn. Thank you so much, Brandy. Brandy is also brilliant. Oh, thank you. You're I welcome. not tell her to say that. I know. Since this is the first episode, I want to say a little bit about my intentions for this podcast. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot of newsletters and articles about writing and filmmaking and uh, being a creative person. I often feel like there's so much focus on the business side of things, like how to make a living as a creator or bigger picture conversations about making something. But there's less out there that talks about the more granular process of seeing something go from an idea in your head to a finished piece of work, the how of it all which I'm fascinated by because I think it's different for every person and sometimes different for an individual with each new piece of work. There was a tweet I really liked recently, which was in response to the whole AI nonsense happening now, which don't get me started on that. Mm -hmm. But I really loved what this tweet said. It was from the writer Gita Jackson. And they said, the current strain of anti-creativity seems to be based on the premise that creative thought and labor is calculable and can be turned into a formula when it is in fact the closest thing to magic that we have in this world. And I wanna talk about that magic. I wanna examine the magic, which I don't think will make it any less magical. That's not the goal, but it will be fun and interesting, hopefully. (laughs) And I want to add in like Brandy told me, when you told me that like a few weeks ago that you'd read that article, Brandy also rephrased it, I thought, in a way that was so potent, which is that because tech people are more and more involved in entertainment, they see they don't see art, they see data. And I thought, yeah, and that's really, too, I was a former university professor, and I left teaching largely because my students also seemed to approach literature as either data that was useful for them or data that was not true. And so they didn't have a sense of, even seeming to engage with the artistry or like what goes into a perspective. So that was really a big, a big one for me to be thinking over the past few weeks. So thanks for that. So the piece we're focusing on today is an essay from your collection, Amplified Heart, an emotional discography, which was published by Other Words Press in July, 2022. Mm -hmm. And as further introduction for you, I just want to read your bio from the back of the book, which I think is so lovely. Bryn Gribben is a poet and essayist living in Seattle with two cats and a love song of a partner. She was a 2021 finalist for the Porch Prize in Nonfiction and a Pushcart nominee for her essay Cabin, among other publications. Bryn has a PhD in Victorian literature, but left academia for a job in antiques. She loves the living relationships that exist among objects of the past. This is her first book. And the book, is all about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, a, that's something else I want to get into, just the like life of an essayist um, and what makes something essay worthy. But we'll get yeah. we'll get to that later on. Um, I think we're going to start just by letting you read a section out of this essay, which is titled, What is the Light? Okay. By way of preface, I want to say too that I really came to my creative life later in my career. I was an academic first for many years, and I was always writing poems on the side. So one of the things that I think is unique about this book is that it didn't come from a, okay, I'm going to sit down and write a book kind of process. So about um, 12 years ago, I returned from a a tenure track job in Missouri. I'd, I'd left it. I'd come back to Seattle, and I was within a year um, they'd cut my position and I was diagnosed with a benign tumor in my parotid gland, which is your salivary gland. And it was benign, but it, it was pretty severe. It had seeded, meaning that many other little tumors were starting in my face. And so I had to have uh, surgery and it had to, I had to go through radiation as if I had cancer. So it was really this fascinating part of my life where I was both um, suddenly going to be unemployed. I was unemployed. I had a pretty intense breakup happen a few 
the year before. And then I also had these tumors growing in my face. So when I wrote that essay, that was not an essay. That was more of a journaling. And we're going to talk more about that later. But the book in which this piece is um, a part, the central unit of didn't start until about eight years ago. So part of what's interesting about this is hold on to your old work because you don't really know where the life cycle of it's going to go. We're skipping over the introductory material of this, the things that you need to know, or I've already said, um, and I'm just going to start somewhere near the beginning. So far, my summer includes three visits to the doctor a week. They use the CAT scan and now an MRI to make a grid of my face. To pinpoint exactly where the spokes of radiation will stream towards the centerpiece of my cheek. Not only am I on unemployment for the first time in my life, I begin paying for health insurance next week with the help of Obama. Man, that guy is Jesus with a budget. I am the poster girl for the Obama socialist agenda. The MRI is funny. They put you in a stormtrooper helmet, cover you up with a blanket, and slip you into a tube. You feel like a Twinkie, packaged and shelved. Then the sounds start, changing constantly in key and frequency, sounding the waters of my face for unknown objects, the holes of cancerous cell ships, the piece of tumor floats them. The scans will last 18 minutes total, someone says from another room over a microphone. This first one will last four seconds. This one, 16. This one will last 10 minutes. Each with a different sound. Submarine, dial-up internet connection connecting, D-flat followed by the sound of laundry drying. I am being mapped. I am Tron. When someone loses a job they love and undergoes surgery, words like tumor and sentences like damage to the facial nerve is possible float like ashes through what's left of your resolve. If you see this happening to a friend, if you would, do please avoid saying these two very dumb things. One, everything happens for a reason. Two, you're so strong slash brave slash courageous Good for you. Concerning number one, setting aside the more complex existential questions surrounding this notion, there are so many things about this that irritate me. I moved back to Seattle when I realized my integrity was suffering in my tenure track job in Missouri. Though I loved my colleagues and several students, education wasn't really a priority. D means degree was a popular slogan amidst the students. I was the only single woman within miles who wasn't a local, a divorced local, or an alcoholic, yet. And I knew not many professors who really wanted to be there. We did enjoy each other and held dinners, parties, and space for each other. Truly, Missouri does love company. Yet, existentialist issues considered, this was too much of a struggle. A struggle that perhaps would lead me to greater liberation but which seemed to be leading to the death of my soul. I'd never been one to follow a plan or to do what others tell me, but the path promised by the PhD seems authentic to lead to the kind of life I could want. It should not have been surprising to find that my perception of my self-worth over seven years had become far more intertwined with the tenure track plan than I thought. The difficulty of letting go of that plan surprised me, but I had to. No number of Dickens novels distracted me from my own misery. So the severity of this became clear when, sitting on my couch in the midst of a blizzard, I found myself saying out loud, who am I doing this for? Or it could have been the time I found myself wondering how much it would really hurt to hang myself. One morning, I slipped on the steep steps from my upstairs bedroom and fell down the entire flight, smashing my coffee cup against the wall as I went and cutting my hand on the ceramic shard. Lying in a pool of blood and coffee, I burst into tears, exclaiming with only the startled cat to hear, I hate living alone. The cat ran away and I crawled to the couch to cry until I could comfort myself. Moving back to Seattle, 
was the first massive life choice I'd made based purely on what I wanted to do, rather than on what should happen next on this path to adulthood. What reason might then onslaughts of tumors eliminate? My choice to move was not impulsive or ill-considered. I refused to believe the tumors were indicative that any decision fueled by integrity needs a brutal corrective. If there was a reason for losing my job and growing a crop of tumors in my face, I can only imagine it might have been this. It would have been worse in Missouri. If you died there, no one would have found you for days and your cat would have eaten your nose. Secondly, I might accept that everything does in fact happen for a reason, if only I could learn the reasons for things one at a time. Instead, however, everything happens all at once and piles on top of everything else, like dirty laundry when you're out of quarters. Sure, you may get a load done here or there, but inevitably the black v-neck tee you need is still at the bottom of the hamper. By the time you get to it, you don't need long sleeves. Hindsight, like a clean black v-neck, often comes after the time for it is over. Concerning the bravery thing, this is a degradation of the word brave. Brave is breaking up with someone you really love, knowing that if you stayed together, you could be content, but instead you face the scarier possibility that you might be happier alone. Brave is stopping a fight on the street by stepping in instead of running across the street to call for help or blowing the whistle on the mafia instead of accepting the offer you were told you couldn't refuse. In short, brave is doing something you know to be right when you have the option not to do it. Having tumors isn't about right or choice. As my current prognosis implies, what with its probabilities of hair loss and possible burned throats. It's all about chance. There's nothing I did to incite the cellular riot in my tissues. There's no carcinogenic I could have avoided to keep my skin beautiful and unmarked. Needing a reason for everything denies possibility, particularly the possibility that even our bodies, maybe our souls, are on a roulette wheel with too much staked on red 21. Even Jesus had his moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. And even if I don't believe in him, I believe in the notion that it is brave to die when you have a choice not to. Getting radiation so small children won't stare at you and men might still want to date you? I don't think we should give out many prizes for that. I did ask my doctor what a cowardly patient would act like, what non-bravery would look like. He laughed and said they'd put off treatment and fall prey to more anxiety, but I think he basically agreed with my reasoning. You have to do it, and you can cry about it, but you're not brave, sister. I will admit that the making of the mask does make me cry and that anyone reading this should feel very, very sorry for me. The mask is this plasticine mesh. It looks like what they put Asian pears in. They wet it with warm water and press it all over your head, face, neck, and shoulders until it hardens completely. Jürgen, the kindly Eastern European who is solely in charge of this process, jokes that this is the part of radiation that is the group health spa the mask hardens, enabling the doctors to plot which of those tiny little holes in the mesh will be the portals for pinpointed radiation. Kind of like city planners deciding where the streetlights should go on the grid of my facial metropolis. So far, so good. But wait, they also bolt down the mask all around your upper half. So it hardens as close to your face as possible. So close that if you swallow, it's uncomfortable because it changes the shape of that weird gradual hardening. It's so close you can't open your eyelids or lips, Those are though there's a hole for your nose, but that's it. If you were to try to raise your head, even to lift your shoulders, you would, I assure you, completely and totally freak out. Imagine it now. 
imagine it again, but worse. The first time I do it, my breath comes in little gasps, little terrors. I tell myself again and again, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. And I will be bolted down into this shape five days a week for six weeks. Where should we start with this? So you mentioned as we were moving into this that it started with journaling. Yeah. Is journaling something that's been a part of your life or was it something that started later on as well? I mean, I I journal the way other people journal. Like if you pick up any of my journals, you're like, wow, nothing but terrible things happened to this person or this person is incapable of joy. And so I, I did have a sense, though, as I was starting to go through this process, that it was an unusual event and that a lot of, as I said, a lot of things were coming together and coming at me at once. So I, you know, my job had been cut. I was still grieving this breakup and I'd never had such an intense medical procedure before. And truthfully, that was really so interesting that I was like, I just, there were so many details that I, I wanted to think about. Um, I was a poet, more of a poet at that time too. So poetry is about details for me. And I kept kind of recording what was happening as a way of just kind of taking stock of material coming at me, you know, like, yes, it was emotionally helpful to process, but um, I just hadn't been through a lot of things. In some ways, it was like I was writing all these tiny medical Yelp reviews or something like where I was like, hey, did you know that an MRI, you know, is like really about different tones? That was very interesting to me. Um, I didn't know how how many levels of a procedure really happened before the big procedure that you had happened. You know, like the worst thing I'd had happen before was I had another tumor in my face, but all they did was like open my face up and pop it out. And that was the end. And I was on drugs for a couple of weeks and, and that was it. And this was so multi-layered that I just didn't want to waste the opportunity to find material for maybe what I thought was a future project. Although I really was, again, I was just in too much grief, too much grief mode to really think about future projects. I just knew something was happening to me that I would forget the interesting things if I didn't write them down now, right? And then what was really interesting is, again, like that happened about 12 or 13 years ago. The book that it's in now is more explicitly focused on music. And so it was really interesting at one point to just go back to this material and, and realize that it fit in now I would have never published this essay on its own. I never tried to send it out or revise it even because it just seemed to go all over the place. But once I had this book going where each essay was about music and intimacy, um, the longer essay that this is a part of is, um, is more about music. And so I just kind of had to wait for the context to appear mm. where it suddenly felt like it fit in. You know, like I asked um, a couple of people, including you, you know, who acted as an editor for me, like, does this work in this book? And they were like, yeah, in some ways, it actually kind of brings lots of other parts of the book together in one space. Like the journaling component, I think you should always do it when you have a new experience come upon you. And especially if you don't know of what use that might be to you, because I do think that writing that focuses on like, how could I use this later is suspicious. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's, I mean, that's why I've always told people, I'm like, yeah, stay away from the fiction writers. They're always like 50 yards away from the party watching everybody. But the poets are in the middle of the action. And I think that the essay, the essay should also come from the middle of the action versus waiting to use the material. You've mentioned to me, you know, how this essay covers a somewhat well-trodden topic, you know, dealing yeah. with the diagnosis and a treatment. There's a lot of writing out there from that specific kind of experience, but I do love the way you bring the lens of everything else that was going on in your life and the sort of, the sort of inevitable tendency of a writer to try to narrativize yes. what's happening to you. 
Like mm -hmm. I really love that part where you're talking about, is this a sort of punishment or reaction or balancing to the mm -hmm. universe? Mm -hmm. Because I made this big choice to come back to Seattle to do what was right for me, even though it wasn't on the acceptable path necessarily from the outside world's perspective. And then what happened? The The job I came back to d died. The tumors yeah. came back. Like, <laughs> what is the universe trying to tell me? Um, so I love that you bring in that extra context, but then you pretty quickly reject it, <laughs> reject it and go straight yeah. back to the details. And I particularly love when you start talking about the making of the mask and you say, anyone reading this should feel very, very sorry <laughs> because I do. It's so unapologetic and it's yeah. something that runs through a lot of your writing where you're very honest about decisions you've made, but you don't apologize for them in the way that certain writers do. And you can ask for what you, the reaction that you want mm -hmm. rather than just being like, well, but in hindsight, this or that. No, in hindsight, yeah. it's, it's bullshit. It's the black V-neck, you know? And, you know, like, I think that was very special to, again, like a new medical experience for me because I, I mean, one of the biggest things I learned from the experience was that I had a body because I was always very cerebral very effort, you know, like always, always elsewhere. And that experience just really made me understand what so many people understand when they go through a medical treatment, which is, it's not really, a, you can't really do anything other than what your body is asking you to do. So at one point in this essay, I talk about meeting a guy <laughs> and like going on a date with him. But I told him, I was like, well, I sleep 13 hours a day right now. And so like the only time I can see you is from one to three before my radiation treatment. And, and really saying that with no irony whatsoever. Like I right. was just like, I just go to bed. I mean, I have to go to bed. I'm so exhausted. And I loved, even though like some people I think would feel so burnt, like tired and angry and hangry and all these things. Like I just kind of really embraced having to do what my body told me to do for the first time in my life. And in terms of making it fresh, like that's part of what's interesting, right? Is um, once I really started thinking about this as an actual piece versus just a record of my life. I mean, like the unapologetic part really is because I think I wasn't thinking about it as something to put out and publish. Um, but you'll notice I am speaking to somebody like you should feel sorry for me. So I thought that was interesting that I would do that kind of move, even if I wasn't planning it. The fact that I let myself write all out all this stuff first, again, meant that I could wait for the right context to come into being to make it fresh. So the, the music part, the part that focuses on the CDs, I think is the most interesting part of the piece. And that fits with the theme of my book. Um, the woman who wrote, what's her name, Donna Tart. I read a review of the Goldfinch where somebody said, here's the problem. Nobody else's drug trip is really as interesting to anyone else. <laughs> and I thought that's right. often what people say about essays about cancer or about um, medical procedures is the problem is you're really wanting a reader to, to understand how important this actually very common thing is to you. But it doesn't come across as important because everybody has to go through that for themselves to feel the weight. So the way that I ended up making it more, I thought, interesting was just to put more focus on the CDs that my friends made me to listen to during radiation. Like you can see at the beginning of this piece, um, it's actually a number of sections for a while. And that's that's just simply me trying to find my way into the piece because I thought, I don't know where to start with this. So I started with the definitions of the word radiation. And then I wrote a little poem. And then I wrote a little prose blurb. So like you can see the stutter stepping as I enter into the experience uh, reflected in the forms that I took with the essay. And then once I hit the CDs and I'm into the weeks of radiation, then that's its own structure. So I think um, allowing the piece to contain multitudes and then to go back and commit to the parts that I thought were the most interesting, but also to pre preserve that kind of multimedia thing that I had going, like 
what does this look like as a poem? What does this look like as a list? What does this part look like as an interview? Um, really helped me contain without over narrativizing and predetermining where things should go. Does that, does that answer that? Yes, I love it. It's a lot, right? <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> it's a, one of the reasons why I was excited we were going to talk about this piece is because it's kind of representative of the whole collection for me in that yeah. it's sort of freewheeling and yet it's it's not it only seems that way because of what you're saying because you took the time to think about different ways into talking about this mm -hmm. and then figured out a way to make it all work together as one piece as one overview that gets really into both your personal experience and like you're saying how it might feel to another person and I think there's one part where it's you slip into the second person as you're talking about the making of the mask. Yeah. And you start saying around your upper half, like it, it really just like makes the reader have to picture themselves rather than you. Mm -hmm. And I loved just, that is just like a very granular choice. You didn't have to do that. The whole paragraph would still work if you were just describing it from your own perspective. But yeah. something about that one sort of switch and then switch back is so effective to me. So when you're writing, is that the kind of thing that just slips out? Or is that something that might come through on a second draft as you're trying to build the urgency or build the emotion? Like, how does that kind of thing usually come up for you? You know, I think um, I think about that a lot because when I started doing more creative work, I think it did slip in more naturally. Like, and that that does reflect, I think, a tendency in me to want somebody to build empathy where I'm like, I can really see how you'd feel that way. Right. And I feel like, you know, so I when I talk to people, I think that was originally the impulse. But then I also, you know, had conversations with people where we would talk about how we hated how somebody would always make it about themselves. Right. Like you're like, yeah, I can really see, you can really see how this would affect somebody and somebody else would be like, no, you don't. You really can't. It's me, it's me, it's me. Um, so I, I I think as I grew as a writer, I started trying to think about where to use that you more intentionally, more strategically. Um, when does it benefit the reader? When does it make them feel like you're speaking for them in a way that isn't true? So in my bigger collection, like, and as I taught more creative writing classes, I would have my students do really intentional exercises with switching pronouns because especially for young writers, um, they actually really want to stay in the I persona to a degree that's really egotistical and crippling in, regarding insight. So if they put it in the you pronoun, I think it actually did help them check in with when what they were saying was an imposition on the reader versus something that really was drawing the reader in. I am a big fan of it now, and I think it is kind of like if somebody was ever to write a little biography of me, like for a writer's website, I'm sure that they would make mention of the fact that like Gribben often loves entering into the space of the second person, not to overtake you, but to take you with her into some other space altogether. A more negative reading potentially of that very section that you brought up would be uh, that the you pronoun is also helpful to slip into when things are simply too difficult to take on in a really intimate way. But it has. I think that's negative, though. I don't think well, that has to be negative at all. I think that it, can also be communication about how hard this was for you that even looking yeah. back on it, you're not necessarily picturing yourself because it was just yeah. so traumatic. Well, and it also, I mean, ironically, it's not distancing because it's very intimate. Right. I mean, I think the you is far more intimate than the I. I mean, I agree with you. Like, I think I was um, I think that the the thing that I see in this piece a lot, though, is like you also um, when we talked about doing this podcast, you said you wanted to talk about the humor of the piece. And I was wondering the same thing about the humor. I thought, yeah, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I use humor to like dissociate or to deflect. And I thought. Mm, probably there's some of that going on in that it was just all so surreal all the time. Like everything that was happening to me, it, it was and it was not happening to me in some ways. Because I was like, huh, like if I was writing an essay like this now, 
I think, I think I'm that much more moral now. Like I'm, you know, 15 years older and it wouldn't be quite so funny to me <laughs> or, or so interesting to me because I've had more experiences with health problems that I would, I think I would feel a little more of the urgency. Right. Whereas a lot of the humor in the piece comes from that same feeling of like, can you imagine that? Imagine this. Isn't that weird? You know, that was a lot of this piece for me. I just loved how ludicrous so many things were. Like, you know, it is a serious thing. And yet stupid things would happen. You know, like there's an essay, there's a part of the essay where the the radiation team would put on a new CD every week for me. And there's a part in the essay where they bolted me down, which means I can't move, and they start playing the CD, and it's Nora Jones. And I hate Nora Jones for no good reason. And I was trying to communicate with them by like raising my hand, like, this is not the right CD. And they were like, well, it says, you know, it's your mix. And then they realized they put two CDs on top of each other. And that's just funny, right? That's ludicrous that like the thing I became most concerned with in this moment were like, Radi- you know, lasers are going through my face. I was like, no, not come sail away with me or whatever that song is. <laughs> I can do this, but I cannot do it I, to Nora Jones. I can do this, but not to Nora Jones. Exactly. I need Eye of the Tiger right now. Daniel Smith, isn't that the editor of Modern Love? He has a list of things that he doesn't want to hear pieces about. And one of them is cancer. And he says, it's not that I don't think that's an important topic. It's just that the amount of material out there about it is so overwhelming. And usually people try to do one of two things with it. They try to teach them a moral lesson about appreciate everything you have, or they try to make it a funny, a funny thing They try to make it funny. And so for me, I thought I kind of loved the dance in, in this writing process of like, when it would all just seem so funny to me, but I didn't try to make everything funny because that wasn't true. And right. so, right. I think too, just structurally, you do write a lot of sentences that, that will have sort of a humorous aside or paragraphs that will have a humorous aside, but you also do those sort of asides with something that's just interesting with something that's a strange mm-hmm. little detail, or even something where you're just letting yourself get exasperated or sit in a less attractive emotion for a second in the paragraph. And so you're using a similar technique for different kinds of bits within the essay. Mm-hmm. So then it feels more natural when it's something humorous. It doesn't feel like it's just, oh, and then a funny joke and then move on because right. that sort of lyricism of the sentences is already a part of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Brandy. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, in college, I would put, it was a marker of my writing style, like when I would write people letters, or I would write essays that I would put some things in parentheticals. And I had a teacher my freshman year of college say, you know, you'll often make these really astute observations in parentheticals. And they shouldn't be parentheticals because they sh- they're actually part of the main idea. So don't use so many parentheticals. And I think it's funny that in this piece, you do see a lot of the parenthetical return. And again, I think in part, because I don't know what always is the most important thing happening. It all seemed kind of equally big and ludicrous. And, you know, so a lot of things get put in parentheticals that were part of the experience. And since I wasn't getting graded, I could put them back in. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I've gotten postcards from you that contained a parenthetical. Oh, yes. (laughs) I certainly you know, when I read Henry James and like I would read like the criticisms of his right or, you know, the praises and criticisms of Henry James's writing is that it's like embedded clause within embedded clause within mm-hmm. embedded clause. And I was like, what is that a stylistic thing? <laughs> like, doesn't everybody do that? Doesn't everybody do that? You Think know, like that. Yeah. And that's one of the things that academia does to you is, you know, you get so much feedback on your writing style only at the end actually like when you're doing your dissertation suddenly everything you're doing is wrong and you know they're just like can you make the subject and the verb closer together and you're like oh sure I can try that because in between are these layers of ideas that you're trying to pack mm-hmm. into one sentence 
And one of the things I really did learn, I love that you love the parentheticals, but one of the things I think I'm trying to say in a bigger sense is one of the ways I evolved as a clearer writer was to, to find out when to put a period in instead of a semicolon. <laughs> if, you know, when to make a, a parenthetical an actual thing. But uh, you've probably heard it in this podcast. I mean, I, I do still tend to interject a lot. And it's something I worked on not doing quite as much because it confused students. Like they were like, wait, where'd she go with that? Where is she going with that? Um, mm -hmm. And so I tried to take out a lot of my elliptical kind of speech patterns. But in my writing, yeah, I still think it's kind of fun. It makes you feel like you're with me, right? So talking about sort of that like words on the page process, how much do you usually go back and, and re-edit one piece? Mm -hmm. So you feel like it's good enough to, I mean, for me, speaking as a writer, there's a couple of different, like good enough levels, good enough to ask someone else for their feedback and okay. then good enough to call it done and send it out. So how much, how many versions are you going through on your own typically before you get to one of those sort of levels? Okay. I'm going to confess something and I'm going to confess it through a parable. <laughs> What were we just talking about being more focused? Oh, okay. uh, yeah. I think I do a lot of composing unintentional. I mean, I don't mean to sound mystical, but I do a lot of composing in my head on an unconscious level. And so if I sit down to write an essay, it usually comes out fairly complete. And like, here's the parable. A few years ago, it was AWP. Are, you know, the big writers conference. And I was hanging out with my old writer friends. And then I went home that night and wrote this essay, um, which is in my book. It's about the Rolling Stone. And I wrote this essay. And then I sent it to my, my friend the next morning. And she was like, Oh, my God, bring Gribben, please tell me you did not go home last night and pump out this perfect essay about <laughs> and I was like uh oh no I've been working on it but yeah I had I had actually just pumped out this very complete essay but it's because I've been processing it all for a long time anyway so sometimes I don't revise a whole lot when I revise like again like I think I don't stop working on something until I feel like I'm at the crux of the real insight and then I, I really have to keep going with it if I'm in the space of like really feeling like I've, I'm on an insight. So recently I wrote an essay. I tried to write an essay for the first time about my father and it came out fairly holistically, but I know that the insight is not there and I know it's not there because it didn't teach me anything new. Right. So I want to, I want to read a section from the very, very beginning of this essay we're talking about, from what is the light, because it touches on a lot of the things that I think are important about thinking about what is an essay worth? Like, when do you know it's worth pursuing or going back to? So what I do in the first paragraph of this essay is just simply what I do a lot of times um, as an academic, as a writer, and I just try to, and a poet, and I try to think about um, levels of meaning. So Radiation, the word radius means ray as the root. To radiate, one, to issue or emerge in rays. Two, to spread out or converge radically as the spokes of a wheel. Or three, to irradiate or illuminate an object. Meanwhile, radiant, the adjective, is consisting of or emitted as radiation. To be filled with happiness, joy, or love or to be the apparent celestial origin of a meteoric shower, object and subject at once, to be that which engulfs the being in light and heat, and also to be engulfed, the celestial origin and the meteor. So when I write an essay, it's because it's something that I feel like has multiple spokes and that it's something that can go both inward and outward. Like I want the writing to illuminate and irradiate something, but I also want it to fill me with happiness or joy or love. And that can also just simply mean really coming to a truth. Like that is joyful for me, even if it's a painful thing. I had so many students who were beautiful writers who wouldn't write good essays because 
they just wanted to state where they'd been wronged, you know, or like they just wanted to say what they thought would inspire. And I'm like, but that's that's a one spoke essay, you know, like I think of spokes of light. And so if you're writing to illuminate one particular thing, like you're probably going to put the essay in darkness, actually. Right. And so I think that's when I know an essay is worth spending out is where I've really learned something new, where it's taken me in directions that I didn't anticipate. And where I think there's something evocative about the subject itself. You know, that's why in the essay, What is the Light? I do focus so much on the medical, in, of the interchange between the interpersonal and the medical. Because that's just, I mean, it was endlessly fascinating to me. That was the interesting part. Like my own emotional process was all over the place. But it wasn't quite as interesting because it was more standard. It was more normal in so many ways, you know. I actually got interviewed by a public radio person when I was going through all of that, they were like looking for story ideas about people who were laid off in the recession. And they were like, oh, well, so you're undergoing this major medical procedure and you've been laid off. And I was like, yeah, and I've also had a big breakup I'm processing. And we talked through it and then they didn't end up doing a story on me. And I'm like, well, yeah, why would you? Because really when you just listen to that part of my story, it's sad, but it's pretty typical. So I enjoyed getting to the space where I'm not just typical, where the subject radiates outward and has lots of spokes. I think that's the best I can say it. When I revise again, though, I'm, I'm only editing to make things clearer, usually. Hmm. You know, like I think the structure of something, I really trust what's coming from me structurally, usually. Because you've done that internal sort of reflection about the purpose or the yeah the importance, what idea you're going to get at, the themes, whatever, but well before you're actually sitting down to put words on the paper. Well, I don't always know what the themes are, but I know that there are multiple possibilities. Writing is discovery. You know, it's kind of a classic thing. It's like, you know, I write to answer. My friend Sonora Cha says she writes to answer questions. And I think that that's one reason to write for sure. But also, I kind of just love seeing what comes up. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is so interesting to me from the perspective of someone who doesn't write personal essays. In fact, as we were, as I was preparing for this podcast, I was trying to remember the last time I ever wrote anything about myself because I just, I write fiction. Yeah. Screenplays. Yeah. I was like, have I written something that was about me since I had to write my like college essays? Like oh I don't, I don't journal. I don't do any uh-huh, of these things. Uh-huh. Like the way that I process stuff that's happening to me in my life is through themes that I'm exploring in a fictional story. Oh, it's not through so, happy hour with me. <laughs> there's that. There okay. is that. <laughs> Where I do a lot of processing. But I guess that's why I wanted to to ask that question that you're alluding to of like why how something becomes an essay, why an idea, a personal idea is essay worthy, because my brain is just not thinking yeah. that way about me, about my life. And, you know, maybe that's something I should discuss with a therapist or something at some point, <laughs> like why I don't think I'm interesting enough for an Aww. essay. But um, are you thinking that way in your daily life? Like when something funny happens or something gonna be an surprising? Essay. Yeah, are you asking yourself that question all the time? You know, that's a great, that's a really great question because I don't think of it as writing about me. Like with this book, my elevator pitch for this book, which I have to do on the regs, is to say it's, um, I'm uncomfortable with the term memoir. I said it's a series of personal essays and each essay is one song, one person. And you'll notice I don't say me, one person, and one song. Because to me, the book, the reason I kept writing it and kept generating more and more was because I wasn't thinking as much about like my life story in love affairs. I was thinking more about how to honor each relationship I'd had. But, you know, like if I was going to give each relationship a song, what would that song be? And how does that resonate with what happened with that person? So, you know, essays for me... Because like I live in Seattle and Seattle for its many fine qualities, you know, its dark side is that I think right now a lot of all the writing has to be a lesson. Like everything has to be a lesson. Everything has to be about how how something is improving a representation or how it's speaking 
you know, a voice that hasn't been spoken or allowed to speak. And that's so important. But I think also, again, I don't think of my essays as having that kind of maybe political cachet. Like, I don't think I'm doing the work of the Lord when I write an essay. <laughs> I write an essay because I either want to honor somebody else, like to illuminate something that I thought was really beautiful and understand it more deeply. Or I want to solve a problem. And like the problem with the essay about my father is that I'm also trying to write about my marriage. I'm, I'm newly married. And there are ways in which I think I'm just not quite ready to understand the relationship between my father and my husband, <laughs> you know, in a way that could be deeper than you know, I have father issues. So I just, when I go out in the world, I think what triggers me as an essay is again, yeah, my interest in other people. So my current book project, I have started another project. I'm working at um, two giant antique malls and the dealers are fascinating people. They are weird, weird people who've lived many lives and other people want to hear their stories. And so, you know, like I don't have a problem, right? That's not what I'm working through. It's just so interesting. <laughs> and I am trying to figure out what would make it interesting for other people to hear about them too. I'm very confident that you will come up with that connective thread. <laughs> I have a working title. You want to hear my working title? I do. Okay. So a hagiography mm -hmm. is a biography of a saint where you talk about what they were martyred for and what their symbols are. So I'm calling this the patron saints of stuff, a oh. secular hagiography. <laughs> the patron saints of stuff. Yeah. I, I recently was um, cleaning out my closet, like, getting stuff ready to go to Goodwill. I love getting rid of stuff. But then I was like, I hate this stuff, but I love my things. The oh. problem is that sometimes yeah. things that used to be my things have just become stuff. And that's yes. the go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But hopefully it will be a thing for someone else once I get rid of it. Yeah. See, that's beautiful. I mean, you know, like there's lots of stuff I could write about, right? <laughs> and you need to find I the thing. Yeah. And I think that's what's really funny, right? Like a lot of us, like um, I had a friend, a writer friend whose mom was always like, you should be like that JK Rowling and write about, you know, or my mom even be like, you should, you should write about this. And I'm like, but that's just stuff to me. There's no thing in it. Yeah. You know, that's just data to go back to the beginning of our conversation. Right. Like, I mean, just data is not interesting, but relationships are interesting to me and, and other people are interesting to me. Well, I have one, one more very important question before we wrap up. Okay. And that is, did you ever make the Victorian hair jewelry from the hair that you lost during radiation? <laughs> um, I still have it somewhere. You still have the hair that fell out? I'm, I think I do. I think I do. Like Jerry Seinfeld has this hilarious joke where he says, you know, he goes, what is wrong with us? He's like, we love hair when it's on somebody's head. We like to pet it and stroke it. And the minute a hair falls off onto something, it's gross and disgusting. And so um, I do think I still have it. My, my best friend, Ann Tandy, is also a Victorianist. And she took a workshop on making Victorian, Victorian hair jewelry. And she said, Brittany, I do not think you or I have the patience for that. Like, she's <laughs> like, it is incredibly hard, <laughs> detailed work for people before phones, TVs and cars. Right. Like, so um, I would definitely do it. <laughs> if if I... it was like an afternoon project rather than. A... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I still have my hair from when I first cut it off, like when it was a, like a college freshman. I cut it off when I was a senior in college. And like the hair naturally molded into two separate buns in the plastic bag I kept it in. And so I used to take it out during grad school at parties and I'd put them up on my head and I'd go, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. <laughs> you truly are a Victorianist. I am truly a Victorianist. Yeah, I am in my soul. And somebody asked me a question at my reading about how that connected to music and antiques. And I made the mistake of saying it's about purity, which made me sound like an asshole, I think, because um, the Victorians were far from pure, right? 
Right. But what I meant by that was this kind of like integrity, this love of stories and love of connecting the past to the present. And the Victorians are so interesting to me because they struggled so much to embrace huge things like Darwinism and, you know, the industrial revolution, trying to figure out like, how do I keep, how do I keep my bearing in, the, in all of this? And antiques also, right? Or like, how do I, what's the value of this thing now? Right. Like, how do I make, bring that into the future? Should it be brought into the future? I look forward to reading your thoughts about it when you well, thank you. have a draft of that project. And I must mention, again, that the title of the collection is Amplified Heart and Emotional Discography. You can find it at all of your online book retailers, as well as bookshops around in Seattle, right? Yeah. And Or buy it directly from the publisher, as I did. Other Words Press, again. And it has such a beautiful rainbow cover. And I will make sure there is a link to it in the show notes for the podcast as well. So that it is easily oh. findable. Thank you so much. Anything else before we wrap it up? There's just always so much I wish I could say more perfectly, you know, like, and that's not, I, that's my final thing to say. There's always so much more I wish I could say more perfectly, but I don't feel that way in my writing. Because if you've read my writing, it is where, it's, a, it's to the place where I'm fine with what I said. It says what you want to say, which the way I want to say it is a hard thing to do as a human being. And I think something that many of us who are writers are are working toward. I really um, my final parting shot then really too would be like that was something I never understood when I was teaching writing was uh, students would be like, aren't you disappointed when you have it in your head the way it doesn't come out on paper the way you had it in your head. And I said, I don't have it in my head. I don't have something I need to come out. And like, again, yeah, I've processed a lot of the stuff, but the writing itself appears on the page. Yeah. In a way that is not about like what I want to have appear. It dictates right. itself. The, well, the writing is the thing. I mean, not to, I said, don't get me started on the AI thing, but there were, yeah. this is part of the conversation that it seems those the tech people don't understand is that like we're not trying to skip over that part of the process like that is what we're yeah. trying to do right? right and and they're and they're writing like again it sounds good it's like the students i had who like their writing itself the prose was quite lovely but they didn't they were going down paths that were already established right, right. because it's the pen to the page or it's the finger to the key that like does some work on its own right it gets you to a different place I mean all of us who are at that place where we feel like we're pretty good at this have Mm -hmm. gone through years of not feeling that way but you just Mm -hmm. keep doing it and doing it and doing it Mm -hmm. thank you so much Bryn thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it well I'll have you back again if this turns into a project that people want to listen to that we keep doing or you know we just record our own conversations for posterity because we're so fascinating we are (laughs) agreed all right thank you so much everyone for listening and we'll be back again